That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, this is James Roday Rodriguez, and uh, here's my issue. Uh, I have a beautiful new adopted French Mastiff named Claude, obviously, and uh, I can't seem to get him to poop firmly. Uh, It may sound uh, funny from the jump, but the truth is uh, it means something is not right with him digestively. And I've tried uh, changing his food a couple of times. I've, I've put stuff on his food. Otherwise, he's a very, very happy large dog. Uh, His energy is great, his appetite is great, he drinks plenty of water, but he poops uh, soft serve. And uh, I've yet to solve this dilemma. I'm still very much in the the mix. I hope it uh, it is resolved soon. There's a new product currently being shipped to me. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic. And I know everybody's gonna wanna follow up on this, so uh, maybe I can get you uh, a picture of a firm poop when in fact it materializes. That's quite the dilemma. And you already offered up all the solutions that I might have. So I'm going to have to bring in the big guns for this. And that is, of course, Ron McGill from Zoo Miami. You hear him once a week on the Levitard show with Stugatz. And he's the man to go to for all animal problems. Let's see if he can uh, give you some insight here. You know, first of all, I don't know how new the dog is. When you adopt a dog and you put a dog in a new environment, there are a lot of nerves that involve in that whole change of environment. So that in and of itself, it's like if you take a long trip, a lot of times people, you know, like I travel to Africa all the time. And when you travel to Africa, people get, they get there and all of a sudden they got soft stools and they think, oh my God, I got, you know, Montezuma's revenge or I've got some kind of parasite. I'm like, no, your body has to make a huge adjustment to your new environment. So that in and of itself is a very common issue, uh, especially with dogs that have been adopted from another area and are going into a new home. Now, I don't know how long he's had that dog. That's something that should resolve itself within about two weeks. If that is not the issue, I'm assuming he's had a fecal exam done because it could very easily be just an intestinal parasite that's causing that. The dog is hungry, he's acting fine, but the parasite just does not allow the stool to, to firm up the way it should. So if he hasn't had that done, if he hasn't had a fecal done with a veterinarian, that's that would be my number one uh, recommendation. Another thing is that with dogs, believe it or not, and I know some vets might get a little upset when I say this, but I work with a lot of vets, and you know, sometimes a little bit of Pepto Bismol does a huge amount of positive effect with these GI problems that some dogs have. Uh, again, my suspicion is that this dog is adjusting to a new uh, environment. Uh, I would like to know if he's getting the exact same food that he got when he was in the shelter or wherever he was av- uh, adopted from, because any change in diet alone is another thing that will send that. You know, the fact that it's soft serve and not diarrhea is good. Uh, that's just that's just showing that just he's just acclimating to a certain type of change, or he may have a mild parasite infestation. The commish has spoken. <laughs> My guest this week is actor, director, and screenwriter James Rode Rodriguez. You know him best as the star of the USA Network hit Psych alongside Dulé Hill, and now as part of the spectacular cast of one of my favorite sort of newest shows started in 2018, ABC's A Million Little Things. They've just started taping their third season up in Vancouver, where James was when we chatted. And we talked about growing up on a military base in Texas, how he fell in love with acting, 
Naked Shows at NYU in their experiential theater program. Uh, his first big break and a couple failed pilots before the cult success of Psych and whether he knew right away that that would be a hit or took a little bit of time. Plus, we talked about the differences in starring on a show versus working with a big ensemble cast and the challenges and pleasures and why he came out of sort of a pseudo acting retirement where he'd been directing for a couple years to play his character Gary on A Million Little Things, a man who is beaten breast cancer and meets his love interest on the show in a cancer group. Super nice guy. Really fun conversation. A couple different dogs get involved at different points. So I hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. I'm super excited to have James Rode Rodriguez on the podcast. Uh, full disclosure to all the psych fans that I'm sure are listening because you are literally psychos. Uh, I've never seen psych. I'm a huge fan of James for a million little things. I started following him on Twitter and he likes uh, rescue dogs and dogs in general and uh, just seemed like a cool dude. And then I started doing some deep dives on psych and now I realized that uh, a whole Comic-Con's worth of people are going to be coming after me for any question I ask that reveals a lack of knowledge. But the good news is I'm going to start watching after this conversation because uh, it seems like a good time. Uh, James, thanks for coming on. We're going to start way back when uh, with that Rodriguez part of your name, James Ro Rode Rodriguez. You just recently sort of added it back into your professional career, but you were advised early on to take it off and you went from James David Rodriguez to inventing, I'm guessing, the name Rode. Uh, that is correct. I mean, I, I can't take credit for inventing the word. Uh, <laughs> it, it existed uh, as a, a character in a Anton Chekhov play called The Three Sisters, mm -hmm. uh, a deserter who often gets lifted uh, because it's a very long, bleak play. And the one scene that usually gets trimmed is when the two deserters show up and don't really serve much of a purpose. One of those deserters, his name is Fedotic, and I didn't want to be James Fedotic. So I went with uh, Rodet. I did change the spelling to something more uh, phonet phonetically friendly. Uh, and I used it uh, as a stage name and also to replace my given middle name. Uh, and that all happened in the course of about 48 hours. Uh, I was working the late night shift at a restaurant in Union Square in New York City. It's called The Coffee Shop that recently closed its doors after a fairly successful run of serving people that partied too hard and needed to eat fries covered in gravy uh, at four o'clock in the morning. As one does. Yeah, and uh, my best friend and I, uh, who have kind of been on this entire crazy uh, show business journey together because we went to high school together in Texas and then, then moved to New York and then went to LA, we were standing there at about 3 a.m. and I was like, I got to come up with a name, man. So, you know, we just workshopped it. And uh, the only thing that's kind of funny about this, about this story is that the runner up name is so bad. <laughs> and, and we were two 21 year old dudes. And I look, looking back, it's like, we just as easily could have swung the other way thinking it was cool in 1998. And I would have been stuck with it and it was a flip a coin situation. And that runner up name was Wish. Yeah. W I. Wait, as a first or last name? As a last name. Oh, okay. A little better, but. Yeah. yeah. Like make, make one. Make uh, Wish. Because James that's, wish. that's my name. Uh, I do have a couple friends who know that story uh, who have called me Wish ever since they heard it. <laughs> and you know what? I deserve that. So Yeah, uh, yeah. I think you yeah. chose right. I wish you would have chosen one of Chekhov's comedies, though. Then, you know, 
fit better with your general oeuvre. There's so many to choose from. Yeah. I'm overwhelmed. It's, yeah, I can see why you would have. Yeah, just gone with the one uh, sad piece. Uh, people accuse me of having a fake name and it's totally real. So I just give my parents credit for knowing that I was going to be you know, incredibly famous mm -hmm. and naming me in a way that was fitting. Uh, your name though was suggested because you appear very Caucasian, but have a Mexican heritage. And did that affect your family at all? Were they, did they, were they on board with you? And it was in part because there was also someone in the union as, as James Rodriguez. Uh, that was, that was true, but I easily could have added like a middle initial and then waited for that person's union standing to expire and then remove the middle initial. There were workarounds. Right, uh, sure. So that, that doesn't really like count. Like on a web name, except for it's someone's actual full real life name. Or any possible thing that you could call a Washington sports franchise. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> exactly. uh, Copyright, just to <laughs> uh, Yeah, you know, I'm half Mexican, so half half of my family was uh, was unaffected. Um, and, and the Mexican half, I have to say, uh, could not have been more understanding and more supportive. Uh, my father was was the phone call, uh, obviously, that I had to make. And, you know, he, he cut me off about halfway through the story that I was stumbling through and said, son, like, it's crazy that this opportunity is even in front of you. Like, you have to do whatever you have to do. You know, don't beat yourself up over this. Because the idea that you know, he was a military man. My mom was a substitute teacher for the most part. I grew up on a military base. And, and the notion that this kid who wanted to be an actor would somehow go off to New York and and kind of become one wasn't something that I think anybody <laughs> had wrapped their heads around as, as a real possibility. So all of us were kind of like, you know, in states of disbelief. And, and so, yeah, he let me off the hook instantly and made the decision in the process as smooth as it possibly could have been. And, and that was a big factor, you know, in the reckoning of it all. Yeah. Um, you know, when I thought back and started doing all the math and, and, you know, really, you know, took this time uh, to reinvestigate that decision. The fact that he was so beautiful and understanding about it um, really stood out and, and played a major role in my decision to get it back. Get it back. Well, now you are James Rode Rodriguez, and now uh, nobody can uh, tell you otherwise because you're too successful now for people to tell you it's a bad career move. And I'm enorm enormously enormously successful. successful. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I dare them. I dare them actually. Yes. Come at me, bro. See what happens. Um, you mentioned the military base in Texas. Uh, I, I heard another podcast. You talked about how you played a lot of sports and then realized maybe you weren't meant for the pros. And that's how you made the pivot into theater and decided to embrace it. It's true. You know, you, Texas, it's sort of, you're, you're born and you're immediately given a football or baseball, um, as like your first toy. And, and I was no exception and I played everything growing up. I was a bit of a, of a jack of, of all sports. Um, and I think by the time I reached high school, it was clear that uh, I wasn't going to excel in any one sport to the to the point that playing beyond high school made much sense. And then it was just like, I also don't want to get destroyed um, and broken. Uh, so I started doing theater my freshman year of high school and our theater director, we just got very lucky because it was a public school, but he ran that program as if we were, you know, at a conservatory. You know, I might as well have been at a high school for the performing arts because he, he essentially said, if you want to do theater, that's all you're doing. 
um, which is a crazy thing for a public school educator to say, but doing other extracurricular stuff wasn't really an option if we wanted to, to be major players in, in the department. So hmm. once you make that choice, uh, you just start living that theater kid life and yeah. uh, it gets in you and takes over, takes over. So you end up at, and by the way, I, I love that for, for men, there's a decision a, a lot of them in sports of like many of the sports that they play will involve them getting uh, physically destroyed uh, if they continue <laughs> after a certain point. There's like no women's sports, especially high school level where you get to destroy anyone. Cause I was on the destroying end and <laughs> like none of the, like the most I would ever have is like a mouth guard and shin guards. I didn't play. There was no sports where we're allowed to, to tackle Right. Eat the shit out of people. And I feel like, you know, that's a real deciding point for people in their lives. Am I the destroyer or the destroyee? And uh, I never, I mean, I always knew, but I never got to make the decision that you did where I, I would have said, I, this sport destroys people and I'm in. Yeah. You would have chosen to continue destroying. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I get yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, anyway. So you end up uh, focusing on school uh, plays and the theater. Do you have a memorable role from any of those like junior high or high school productions that stands out? I do. You know, same director. So he wanted us to know theater, regardless of, of whether we pursued it or not. And, you know, he put Shakespeare in front of us immediately. Wow. So we were doing a Shakespeare every year along with something more commercial um, that hopefully we could get most of the school to come and see and help finance what would then be our third production of the year, which was like our contest play. And it was like a UIL statewide one act play competition. And one year we did uh, The Elephant Man, which uh, was a play before it was a movie um, from David Lynch. And I played the titular character, and the interesting thing about about that play is that it, it's written to be performed without prosthetics of any kind. All you do is come out at the beginning of the play in a diaper, essentially, and uh, as the doctor, the Anthony Hopkins role from the movie, starts describing everything that's wrong with John Merrick's body, you physically just sort of one body part at a time start deforming yourself and then it kind of just that's it and then for the rest of the play um you've just sort of kind of tried to physically transform yourself and for i mean for anybody but especially for i think i was 17 at the time it just felt like a, a herculean task yeah and it was and it was i think probably the first time that i recognized what a powerful medium theater is because of the fact that it can't do all of the stuff that movies and TV can do. Um, the suspension of disbelief is exponentially more powerful. And that sort of unspoken contract you have with an audience is very, very special because of stuff like that. Totally. Um, yeah. You have to believe that I'm the elephant man, even though I look exactly like myself with a hunchback. And are we in? Are we all in? We're going to do this. All right, let's do this. You know? Right. We did some heavy stuff too. I was Hot Lips Hulahan and Mash. So <laughs> yeah, you. Were. I, had to, I had to be blonde, which a lot of people bought, which I think meant that it was a success. That I did you I dye did. your hair or did you wear a, no, it was a, a wig. wig? It was very yeah. it was, it was a wig. Yeah. Um, okay, so you get to NYU, and speaking of sort of the the depth of theater and the sort of abandon of it, you're in the experiential theater part of of NYU's program, and. Uh, 
that to me feels scary. Uh, it feels like a, <laughs> as like a, a kid leaving Texas who was grew up a, a military brat and goes to a big city. Um, and I wanted to be an, an actress when I was growing up. So this is not coming from a place of judgment, but like the very weirdest edges and periphery of theater people who um, have this sort of tenuous grip on the life that we all are, are walking through and moving through and, and sometimes can be genius for it, but also can be almost impossible to interact with in a regular conversation as a result. I feel like they would all gravitate toward the experiential uh, major or, or focus there. Was that the case? Uh Yes, for, for the for the most part, yes. At NYU, uh, the program is broken into studios, so it's kind of like a, a supermarket, and you have to spend two years studying one basic discipline: uh, Stella Adler, Strasberg. Um, Mamet created a style of acting, which is basically like be a man and just say the words as I wrote them. Um, and then, and, and the experimental theater wing was basically synonymous for downtown theater. It was downtown, grungy, dirty, experimental theater run by experimental avant-garde theater artists. And in, in perhaps the simplest terms, especially breaking you into the program, it meant take your clothes off. Um, and no, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what it meant. It, it meant, this so is my your, fear was warranted. Yeah. This is my nightmare it, as a 18 this, year old. <laughs> this is your body. This is the only body you're ever going to have. This is your instrument. Get comfortable with it. Um, put it in front of your peers and, and, and get rid and get rid of all of the inhibitions. And so we essentially had to do a production. I mean, it wasn't mandatory, but there was always a production that involved, uh, a fair amount of nudity and uh you you did it and you got it over with uh and to be honest like i watched some really inhibited young people become far less inhibited and more comfortable with their bodies and it was a physically based training which is the other reason i liked it because i i didn't want to get spoon fed this is how you act this is, you do this, 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 and that's how you approach a character. And this was actually much more liberating because it was just like, get comfortable with your tool um, and use that as sort or of- Or lack thereof, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> and there was weird stuff. Like they, you know, it was definitely- uh, Can they still do that today? I feel like there'd be so many waivers and all uh, just a general fear of hidden cameras everywhere. And that is a great question. Or I, I I saw like one episode probably 15 years ago about someone hiding cameras in like a dressing room at Bloomingdale's and now everywhere I go I have, I'm deeply convinced that there are cameras everywhere. That's a great point and you know I've never even thought of that cuz it, it was such a huge part of of that program and now like yeah with people trying to f film productions yeah. with their cameras it's blackmail someone or like yeah that's pretty gross yeah yeah it's really gross unfortunately there's a lot of downsides to uh the incredible technology that has also allowed us to survive throughout this pandemic i was yeah. talking about it the other day i'm like we were all so sad about bricks and mortar and like the effects of online retail and now like this would be a whole lot shittier if we couldn't just keep ordering everything this is true <laughs> yeah yeah. Real conflict. Um, okay, so you're at NYU, and um, was it a big fish in a small pond feeling when you got there, or did you get there and say to yourself, "Oh yeah, I'm really good at this"? Like, and not in a not in a cocky way, but in a yeah, I've chosen right, and I think I'm going to be able to do this. I certainly felt like I had found my tribe, and I think that sort of superseded any 
anything else, at least initially. I knew that I was not where I was supposed to be growing up in Texas, and especially once I got serious about theater. So the combination of living in downtown Manhattan and being around a bunch of like-minded young artists felt absolutely right for me. And so I just sort of rode that wave, I think, until I got more comfortable with my own my own place in it all. I just knew like this was the right thing. This was the right thing to do. I'm in the right place. Relax, breathe, figure out what life is going to look like, um, get a job, and then uh, and then start honing, start honing your craft. Yeah. Uh, this was the restaurant job you mentioned. A couple of them. Yeah, I I, I started off. Actually, the first job I got, which is the only job I could get initially, was at a, a record store in the West Village. I don't know. Do, do you remember Sam Goody? Do they still yeah. exist? No, I don't think so, but I remember it. So I was I was just working retail for like the first six months for, for minimum wage, which I want to say at the time was under $5 an hour. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then I got a hosting job, and I remember that was a big bump up. because like at a restaurant. I, at a restaurant because I at least got that was like, my first job as an actress was uh, that's what host. you're supposed to do I think yes host at a restaurant it was a pizzeria uno <laughs> nice yeah nice. and then from there I got onto the wait staff and then from there I got trained as a bartender and once I once I was good to go as a bartender I felt like okay I can handle this that's where you make the big bucks yeah come at me I can work late shifts I can I can still do a show and have a rehearsal in the evening and make it to my job at midnight or whatever. And, and then I felt like I had it all worked out. And you had your first acting professional job before you'd even left school. Yeah, that was the gig that sort of, that was affiliated with the name change. It was a, it was a fluke. Uh, I'd gotten my, my headshots, which is a big deal. <laughs> were they black uh, and white? Oh yeah. Yeah. My first ones were black and white. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, I, I think, I think they've gotten a lot better about this, but back then there wasn't a whole lot of tutorial or instruction about the business or what to expect from the business once you're done with school. So it was a little bit like, well, what is everybody else doing? What are some of the older people that I you know, wait tables with? What are they doing? And so you knew you had to get headshots and uh, got them done. My best friend who I mentioned, Todd at the time was, uh, was interning at a tiny boutique agency in New York because he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And so he got me a meeting with the one talent agent that was there because mostly they represented opera singers. And with the hopes that she would show me which pictures sucked and which ones didn't. So I went and sat down with her and I was like, what do you think? Here are the proofs. And she like circled two and she's like, don't go anywhere. Uh, I'm sending you on your first audition. And it was crazy. It was that crazy. It was that silly. And that was my first professional audition. It was for a, a pilot that uh, they couldn't find. It was a two-hander and they had their actress, but they couldn't find their guy. And they wanted to find somebody new. And I read, I'll never forget, like I got, it was a DreamWorks pilot. And I walked in and in the lobby was a giant poster of Saving Private Ryan. And now you realize, oh, that's just the lobby of the casting office. And this casting director clearly cast Saving Private Ryan. But for me, I was just like, uh, oh my God, like I'm in the DreamWorks building. <laughs> and and that's a poster of a giant film uh, with Tom Hanks. And uh, I read, next thing I knew, 
Uh, they wanted me to fly to Los Angeles for a test. I didn't know what a pilot was. I certainly didn't know what a test was. Uh, and the whole thing happened so quick. Uh, I was on a plane. I was in LA. I met the actress. We read together. I had the job. Uh, I had to come back and, and delay my finals because it was my last semester of school. Uh, that's when the whole name thing went down. Like, you should really consider this. And then I went back to LA, shot the pilot. It was uh, hot, hot garbage and uh, didn't go. <laughs> you with well or just the show? Uh, I don't think I was doing my best work. You know, it was a, it was a half hour multicam. It's the only one I've, I've ever done, uh, oddly enough, because it is um, people who are good at it, I have a ton of respect for because there is a rhythm to it. It is about setting up a joke and then landing a joke. There's no improvising. There's no, it's not a, it's not a very organic medium. And, uh, and it was that, and I, I sure I was struggling. I was also working with children who would like, were like veterans of the business and giving me pointers. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I can't imagine if I went back and watched it, I would be very impressed, but yeah. That's amazing, though. I mean, if it's your first audition, what an incredible confidence boost to have it work like that, even if it didn't get picked up. So lucky. And a good lesson that it didn't get picked up because you learned right away not to call everyone you know to tell them your show's going to be on TV. That is correct. And you also learn how quickly a little bit of money goes away. Uh, um, especially if you, if you don't really know what money is and then all of a sudden, like, a number gets put in front of you that seems huge. Um, it's not. It's it's gone in about a month and a half, <laughs> and then you're back to bar uh, attending bar. Yeah. So, uh, your would you say your your biggest first thing was uh, the movie coming soon? Which, to be honest, I've never heard of, despite it having Aston Kutcher and Ryan Reynolds in it. So I can't uh, say how big <laughs> it is, but I mean, for you at the time, and according to the the business, did it feel big? It it was an indie, and and we knew that it was a small movie. But it was, we were shooting it in New York, which was really cool. And they got some good people. The, the thing about Coming Soon is that they were trying to capitalize on the success of American Pie, which was about a bunch of, uh, you know, know, what Coming Soon is about. <laughs> dumb high school boys trying to get laid, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they said, let's do the same thing, but with three girls. And because it was girls instead of boys, uh, all of a sudden it wasn't commercial. They slapped it with I an NC-17. Wow. They slapped it with an NC-17 rating. There is not a shred of nudity in this picture, by the way. Maybe a couple like F-bombs. Precursor, precursor to WAP. Um, Cardi B and, and Megan the Stallion should have seen all this censorship yeah, coming. God forbid a high school girl <laughs> be uh, seeking out an orgasm because that's that can't... I mean, uh, dudes can you know, apple pies, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh no and so play dave matthews lover lay down and loser virginity and all of a sudden might as well be a porn it's uh it was discouraging to say the least and uh i was the bad guy to ryan's good guy uh so he got the girl and uh ashton if i if i recall was i think he has he has sex with gabby hoffman but doesn't speak so I think it was his first movie. Okay. And, and he was just like a piece of beefcake. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the first thing that felt different or kind of like, uh, oh my goodness, this is an evolution for me, was probably uh, 
a movie called Dukes of Hazard based on the TV series. Cause I had done a lot of TV up to that point and I felt like I had a pretty decent handle on the model and what things look like. And then Dukes of Hazard was a big fat studio movie and everything about that felt different. Yeah. Uh, everything felt bigger. Yeah. Uh, we shot for what felt like forever. Um, there were big movie stars involved at the time, and and that experience definitely felt different than anything that had come before it. But the big break is, of course, Psych, which starts in 2006. Um, I heard you on another podcast talking about how, you know, you had done a couple different smaller TV shows that hadn't made it. Some that you figured, oh, this is a sure thing. You know, it's Alicia Silverstone and yeah. it's her first TV vehicle and this is going to make it. After a, a handful of those, do you then approach everyone coming forward differently or do you have to treat every single one the same and just say it's up to the the gods of TV and viewership and politics and everything else so that you can walk into psych and not feel discouraged or assume that it's not going to hit. Absolutely. The sooner you can make peace with there not being rhyme or reason uh, or an equation or an algorithm that you can apply to these things, the saner you shall stay. The big difference with psych was that, you know, it was the, it was the most of a signature that I personally was, was ever going to be able to put on something. So the pressure came from the fact that, you know, even if it didn't, whether it went or not, if it was good or bad, a lot of it was going to fall on me. And I had never had that opportunity or experience before because I was always playing supporting roles. I was usually like the snarky guy who came in and said something in a conference room um, and dated the main Mm-hmm. character's sister, you know, or, or best friend. And, and this time around, it was like, no, man, you're, you're going to have to, especially in sort of those, the early, early season stuff, you're going to have to carry the show and, you know, sink or swim and it's on you. So, and, and I was on the cusp of turning 30, I think. So it's not like I wasn't like wanting that and ready for that, but it's, you know, when it's actually in your lap, um, there's a shift. There's like a cosmic seismic, like, holy shit moment <laughs> where it's like, if I don't, if I blow this, I might never get another chance of doing it. Mm. Um, so that was, that was psych. And, uh, and the most beautiful gift was that it was on the USA network, um, which at the time was a fledgling little network that mostly was known for wrestling and, and one show called monk. Mm-hmm. And and we became the sister show for Monk and, you know, helped them sort of brand themselves at the time as this blue sky, you know, it's it's never going to get too dark network. And as a result, we had mm-hmm. so much more time to find our sea legs and a lot more leash and kind of got left alone because we were up in Vancouver. I can't get out of Vancouver, by the way. Um, <laughs> Not a bad place to be. No. And so it was a per- it was the perfect storm um, to, to create sort of the the environment that that specific show needed, I think, in order to thrive, because we didn't have it right out of the out of the gates. We weren't entirely sure what psych was or what it could be. And if you slap that on NBC after three episodes, you're gone. You're toast. Right. 
I mean, there's like shows like The Office that almost didn't make it because yeah. it hadn't found itself yet. And then you look at what that does. Uh, it's scary on those on those big networks. Um, you got to write some in the first season. You were directing some episodes by the third season. So not only is it on your shoulders in terms of everybody recognizes you as one of the two main stars alongside Dulé Hill, but you're actually creating. That's a great cool way to learn a lot of those skill sets because you have such an ownership of the project and because you're clearly going to be treated kindly and nicely as you learn, I would imagine. It's um, the best. Yeah. That's really cool that they would put, and, and you hadn't done much of that before or you'd done a bit. I had written uh, one movie along with um, my best friend and another fella uh, f- that ended up getting made, but it was a big studio movie that kind of got, ruined so my experience with writing had been pretty ugly and it was also feature writing which is very different so yeah i was i didn't have any of that under my belt it was just again a beautiful group of people and a wonderful man who invented who invented psych uh who was just so generous and so supportive of of letting everybody do what they wanted to do because he just figured that would make us happiest and you happier actors are going to make for, you know, better show. Um, wild approach, a, a wild approach. And, and he knew that I was very, very interested in directing and uh, he directed in at the end of season two. And once he had gotten his uh, hat in there, he was like, you're up next. I never had to ask. I never had to ask to write or direct on that show. That's really cool. That's it's crazy. That's, that's great. So a couple quick questions based on, on the psych stuff. Um, do you think that Sean and Gus would have quarantined together or would they have turned some sort of uh, trickery based on this, on this COVID? I think uh, 100% they would have quarantined together. Yeah. They would have snacked and probably they would have done a deep WWE network dive, I think, <laughs> okay. and started watching old Royal Rumbles. That would have gotten them through the first week. Uh, did you ad lib the nicknames for him or were those all scripted? It was a mix. We had so many runners on that show that, that were never meant to be anything but us goofing off in between takes. And then someone would giggle and we would try sliding it into the middle of a, of a scene. And then if it stuck, it became a new fun thing that everybody could get in on. So the nicknames sort of started off as one of those and then became like, something that we had 10 alts for every yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's great. Um, are you like Sean in real life? Cause I was looking at some of those shows that didn't make the cut um, in mismatch. Your top line adjective was womanizer uh, <laughs> in psych. You're a very smooth talker in a million little things. You are very charming. That's like the whole bit of your character. I mean, there's other parts to it, but it's like rooted basically in like good banter with your lady friend and being charming. Um, but you seem kind of quiet and a little soft-spoken in real life. Uh, so are you not a womanizing, smooth-talking, sarcastic person, or are you just being quite calm during this interview? No, I would say, uh, you know, I, st- I struggled mightily with uh, social anxiety for a while when I, when I first got into this business. Another thing that nobody prepares you for because it has so little to do with acting. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's taken me a while to sort of find the balance um, between what we do and, and how we kind of have to maintain some element of that off camera as well 
especially when it's our job to promote things and and be ambassadors of the work. Because the truth is, I, I kind of do love being uh, by myself and quiet in a corner. Um, and you can't you can't always do that uh, when you do what we do. So it's it's been a process uh, for sure. I think it's really easy for me to go to that place uh, when I'm acting because it feels like escapism and it feels like you're getting to do something fun and different. And it's the reason why I think most of us get into acting to begin with is because we don't want to be ourselves. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we want to be somebody yeah. else. Um, so I, I would say, I guess the more comfortable I get in any given situation or with, with another human being, um, the more I loosen up, the more I come out of my shell and, and the more I start slinging the funny. But, uh, I, I honestly just thought my job on a million little things was to fill the requisite role of, um, guy with beard. Uh, yeah. Well, any, you're doing that well, really well. Any middle aged show with where people are struggling and having crises and being emotional right. ha has to have a bearded man. To be honest, though, millennials are really stealing some of that as well. Like uh, the the beard has taken over all age ranges, really. But it means something different, right? Like for millennials, doesn't it mean like you're hip or like you can yeah. make a craft craft? Yeah, like you're even attractive with this on your face. Yeah, you can play a twelve string. Like no, I get it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. For us, it's just maybe, for maybe us, a it's you. pure pure crisis, man. That's just true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to figure out. I have more than one chin, and this will probably help with uh, <laughs> people not knowing. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's fascinating because I imagine there's pressure if you do start to play similar roles that are these sort of quick witted and smooth. I remember, uh, an, an ESPN, uh, 1000 in Chicago, Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis came in to promote something. And I felt sad because Will was what you'd expect, had a lot of energy and Zach was downright depressing. And I didn't want to hold him, him to, be funny clown, right? Like, like with comedians, but at the same time, um, he is very clearly a very quirky fellow, right? You don't expect him to, to be Jim Carrey esque, but right. at the same time, he does make you laugh so much and bring so much joy in the things you watch him in that then for him to come in in person and be as flat as can be. And maybe it was a bad day. Maybe that's who he is when he's not performing, but that's such an unfair pressure to put on people, but it is part of the gig almost once people have decided that they like you even though they don't know you for whatever roles you play. Um, is that hard for you, especially with something like psych where you're going to like comic cons and it's the people that are into this show are into it beyond just, I'm going to watch it. It's going to make me happy for an hour. It's, it's like, I want to go to the comic con. I want to find out everything I know about this person and all that stuff. I, I totally agree with you. And it was actually Alicia um, Silverstone who got through to me finally and said, look, um, you're on this show and your job on the show is to do this. And like, you're funny and none of us are that funny. So when you're doing the red carpet and stuff, you need to make jokes. Like, come on, <laughs> like pull up Cougar. She didn't say that. <laughs> I can't give her credit for making a top, a top gun reference, but yeah, um, yeah. It, it's the first time it kind of hit me like, Oh, this job doesn't stop when, you know, you hear cut. And you know, for someone like Zach, you, you never know because there's enough Andy Kaufman in that dude. That yeah. He might be doing shit like that on purpose right. um, just to mess with your expectations. Uh, but no, for the most part, like if you're coming in to promote something funny, um, be funny, be energetic, make people want to laugh and see it. 
you know? Right, right. I, but I it is pressure if it's not your natural way. So it does have to then become a bit of a performance in itself. Um, you got to do a lot of crazy, wacky, silly stuff on, on Psych. Did you have a favorite episode or a favorite kind of conceit that allowed you to, to play? Uh, we At one point in that show, we became like a series of homages because our, our strength was never mystery of the week, even though that was the formula. It was a bunch of comedy writers and we couldn't, we couldn't make a mystery to save our lives. So <laughs> if you do start to watch psych, you'll realize very quickly, like the, the cases are thin and convoluted as hell, but, <laughs> but what we could do is celebrate pop culture, like nobody's business. Mm. And, and once we had the fan base, we realized that we could start sort of winking and nodding and tipping our cap to all the stuff from our own childhoods that we loved. Nice. And so, and so we just started checking stuff off the list. So once we sort of entered that era of psych, I was a kid in a candy store because every week we had someone um, that I looked up to coming up to guest star and we were doing bits from movies that sort of shaped my cinematic vocabulary. And, and the one that, I always, I mean, I have to say this one because, you know, my, my I can't believe we got to do it is the reason why I, I, I always lead with this. But my favorite show of all time um, only ran for two seasons and the second season was only so-so, but that was Twin Peaks. And uh-huh. I love that show. I worship that show. I was, you know, an eighth grader and a ninth grader when, you know, when it came out. And, you know, I was my first... TV crushes were Mitch Namek and Sherilyn Fenn and Dana Ashbrook was Bobby Briggs. And I was tying my flannel shirt around my waist <laughs> and wearing bandanas on my head and Doc Martens. Um, not because I was listening to the right music, but because I wanted to look like Bobby Briggs. And for five years on psych, I, I was pitching, we got to do Twin Peaks. We got to do Twin Peaks. We got to do Twin Peaks. And finally, I think I, we just I wore them down in the studio and the network both said, fine, we don't know that show. <laughs> We're not going to be able to give notes. Just do, just yeah. do it. And then we'll never have to hear about this again. And so it's a deep dig with, it's loaded with Easter eggs. I was, I, I, I co-wrote the episode and I just like everything I loved about Twin That's Peaks. That's awesome. And we got eight original cast members of Twin Peaks to come up, oh. um, including Dana, who at that point had already become a very good friend of mine. And I got to sit there and watch like a little mini Twin Peaks reunion happen on the set of Psych. That's so cool. And it was like, I was at Comic-Con, like as I was, I was the fanboy, and it was uh, a really special, awesome experience that you only get to have if you're on Psych. I mean, I don't know. Well, or community, which is what I was going to say. Now that you're talking about it, it's making me realize I'm definitely going to like Psych because (laughs) like my nearest approximation to Comic-Con for anything would be, I would show up for a community. I have, uh, you know, I've always loved that. So if that's kind of the, the bits you get to do there, that's, that's so fun and explains why people get so cultishly into it. Um, so you end up directing for four years after Psych, um, considering the p- possibility that maybe you won't act again, that you're so into the directing stuff that you might just stick with that. And then along comes a million little things. Were there other acting opportunities in the middle and none of them were worth wanting to go back? Or was how did this land in your lap? I think that's a fair assessment. I, uh, I was very much on, on the track of staying behind the camera because I felt like I had catching up to do. It's something that I'm equally passionate about, but haven't done as much of. 
um, yeah, I, I wanted to direct another movie and I just felt like I needed to put the, you know, my focus in the place where I, you know, where I really wanted things to happen. And so aside from a little indie here or there, um, I wasn't even really pursuing acting jobs. And then this one came along. It was a network pilot. Uh, I tried to get away with not even reading it and just passing on it blindly. My agent and my manager were, were like, we're cool if you pass. All we're asking you to do is read it. And they rarely ask. They rarely step in like that and say, hey, just will you please just read this? I think they they've been really cool with me over the over a long period of time, passing on a lot of of opportunities. And so for them to be like, just read it. It was like, okay, yes, yes, I can do that. And what I wasn't expecting when I when I opened it up was to see a story about uh, a man with breast cancer. I, I just wasn't expecting to see that story told uh, through that prism. And you know, breast cancer is something that has touched uh, multiple people that are very important to me. And it felt like one of those real crossroad moments where, okay, if I pass on this role, and it was a good script too, if I pass on this role in this show, then I am officially essentially hanging up you know, my boots because you don't pass on these kinds of opportunities as an actor when it's so hard to get a job, much less a good job. And so I had to take a couple of days because it was a bigger decision than should I do this pilot? It was, am I done acting is really what it was. Mm. And, uh, and I wasn't, I, I, I just, I, I wasn't quite there yet. Still just a pilot, still a good chance that it never goes anywhere. And I knew that it was probably 50-50 and I could go and do this and invest in it and feel like, all right, I did the right thing. And then it goes away and I get right back to work on the stuff, the other stuff that I was doing. Um, but it went and uh, and here we are. And I don't regret it. I, I don't regret for one second because of the stories that we've been able to tell and the group that I'm up here with and uh, the light that we've tried to shine on some very real issues, even though it's, you know, within the context of also having to be a network sort of evening soapy show. Mm -hmm. um, the moments that I feel like we've really succeeded in achieving in terms of storytelling, I am very proud of. And, yeah. uh, and the rest of the stuff you just kind of have to take, you know, because it helps, it helps the palate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned it's sort of evening soapy. And so what drew me into watching it from the first episode was just a, a, a banger of a trailer with really good music an interesting ensemble cast and like, oh, this seems interesting and not too over the top. And then when you start watching it, there are, of course, those cliffhangers and the writing that makes you, oh, who's what? What is this mystery? You know, who's this mysterious person or what's the truth behind that? But the acting on it is so phenomenal across the board that it never becomes schmaltzy or it doesn't jump the shark in the ways that you expect, even in moments that would maybe in another show feel a little far-fetched or like, Oh, you know, um, and that happens very rarely on anyway, every once in a while you're like, that was coincidental. But for the most part, you're just like, shit, these people have a lot going on in their lives. But I have one friend who's got a life that's very similar. It's like, how is this to keep happening to you? all of these crazy things? So um, it's just, it's a, it's a fantastic show. The acting is so good. Um, 
And I'm curious for you, like how different it is to work with a big ensemble like that versus coming in every day for psych where almost every scene's probably going to have you in it. Uh, it's night and day. And I think in a really good way, uh, I, I've had so many opportunities on this show to just appreciate the work that's happening around me in a way that I never really got to on Psych. Is that Claude? Um, no, those dogs are outside. Oh, I don't know who the neighbors. I guess. Um, very, very dog friendly pocket that I'm in here in Vancouver. Um, that's now the. Poodle. I was like that. Not out there. That. Whoa! <laughs> now you just sound like you're in a, a full-on animal <laughs> rescue. Animal. Yeah. yeah. Guys, okay. how many dogs are in the house? <laughs> Two dogs in the house. Here's what happens: we're in like a we're in a duplex situation, and they share a yard with the two dogs from upstairs. And when okay. the upstairs dogs come down, they see them in the yard, and they're like, they "Wait a second!" Fired up about it. Those that's our yard. Which you can't explain to them. No, it's <laughs> all of it's a community, and you're half of the community. Got it. Got it. Um, but no, it's it's. Uh, it's great. It's great because there's so many storylines going on at any given moment that you know that at least one person in the cast is uh, is really <laughs> guys. Can't you can't you see that we're doing something? <laughs> I based solely on his bark, I can only imagine the size of Claude, uh creamy. Good. Soft hoops. A terrifying size. Come here. Ready? <laughs> oh, now we're getting a good look at him. Oh, hi, buddy. Oh, yeah, he's the background of your Twitter, that giant face, that head. Um, that was actually my last French Mastiff. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Franck, who uh, I had an incredible decade-long run with and uh, crossed the Rainbow Bridge about a year and a half ago. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the new ginger giant head. Yeah, I appreciate the uh, that you are sticking with authentic French names for your French mastiffs. It just it feels right. Yeah, it just feels yeah, right. It does. But uh, yeah, to put a to put a half-assed uh, bow on that last <laughs> question, uh, it's 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 cool, man. I really love uh, getting to watch actors act. Uh, I love uh, I love actors, and I love watching different processes and, and the way that they get to where they need to go. And I, I didn't get to do a lot of that. Um, on site. So it's cool to watch my co-stars. Like they wow me all the time. Yeah. Do you get to see ahead and all those twists and turns of the storyline or do they keep you guessing? Uh, our show creator DJ really likes the, the idea of uh, us not knowing more than our characters know. Oh, wow. So, That's so like we, we didn't know the big reveal at the end of season one until we read that script at the table before we shot it. And none of us were like, we had all guessed because how can you not? Um, and none of us were anywhere close to uh, to nine eleven. Like we yeah. were all just like, "What? Whoa!" Yeah. Uh, so that yeah, that part of it's pretty fun too. I bet. Yeah, that's really cool to be surprised along the way. Um, can Gary and Maggie get back together, please? I mean, it's really hard to go wrong with a cancer love story. So I, I have to, I, I have to think that they'll, it's so cliche uh, though. Man with breast cancer meets woman, woman cancer. cancer meeting has sex <laughs> immediately. We've seen it a million times. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I have to think that it's, you know, a well that they're, they're go going to want to go back to at some point. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's what they think you'll think. And so they, they'll want to do the opposite. Uh, 
You dated a previous co-star for many years, so you didn't have to fake the chemistry there. Have you ever had a love interest in a show or movie that you absolutely despised? Despised? Never. Um, didn't have an ounce of chemistry with? Yes. Oh, um, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> did it I mean, look like you did from, like, did it play? It was a really broad comedy, and I don't think it mattered, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> um but yeah, you just, you, you know it almost instantly, like if there's going to be something there or not. And yeah, you don't always get lucky. Not everybody has chemistry with everybody. Yeah, it's, it's really fun when it works. Did you watch uh, Fleabag? I did. I feel like that Phoebe Waller-Bridges and the hot priest chemistry is one of the most perfect examples of like you're watching and you're like, they've got to be like, this is yeah. too good. And you know they're yeah. not, and it doesn't matter in real life, but you're like, wow, how did you figure out these two people together? And it's just. Uh, they were fantastic. And I think at one point, like, me or my or my girlfriend looked it up and discovered that, like, he's out and gay, and that, that blew our minds even what? more. Yeah, pretty sure. Hot what? Face. Yeah. No way. <laughs> I think he is. That's amazing. And if Acting. I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong about that. Like, strike me down. But I, uh, I feel uh, I feel confident enough to to bring it up that even like he made him more impressive. And no uh, the, the two kids on I don't know if you saw any of Normal People. Oh, I've heard such good things about it. I haven't watched it yet. Those two are off the charts. Like, yeah, it was like a master class being taught by two twenty year olds. Like, <laughs> and it was like as I was watching. I was like, of co course, they haven't had time to develop any bad habits. They're just <laughs> yeah. exist existing so truthfully in every single moment together. It was just mesmerizing. Yeah, that is that's uh, it's it's really cool to watch, and I'm sure it's much more fun to play um, than if you're not, you know. Uh, he is gay. Remarkable acting. <laughs> As uh, as uh, the old John Lovitz character acting, acting. That's right. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, how do you balance ambition and uh, drive, and even jealousy of what other people who do what you do have, with gratitude for what you do have? Because I think even if you have the best attitude, there's always, especially in industries that are really public and where the people who achieve the most, you know, their spoils are quite visible. Uh, it's it's hard to just on an everyday basis be thankful for what you have and and want to be ambitious without constantly doing the keeping up with the Joneses stuff. I mean, it is uh, that's the that's the million dollar question I think uh, for so many industries. Um, but for me, uh, I I have so many good friends, richly, beautifully talented friends who have been a lot less fortunate than I have in this business. And it's almost impossible uh, to lose that perspective um, when they make up parts of your life every day to just be, you know, that's the, the appreciation is that you're doing the thing that you dreamt about doing that you've always loved to do, you know, take the jobs that you, that you can do them the best that you can. It's okay to be ambitious. It's okay. It's okay to want to do more, but I think, looking past what you have and constantly thinking about like, Oh, but that I want that, 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 uh, that's the poison pill to me. And, and the sooner that you learn that, uh, the better off you'll be because it's such a, it's, it's so fickle and it's such a fleeting business that 
you know, it doesn't matter. You have all the ambition in the world or, or in a Marvel movie, like it could still be gone within two years. Like, and nope. And this, it's the business is not going to stop. It's not going to pause. Like I just read the other day that Cameron Diaz had essentially retired. And mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, I haven't seen her in a while. Yeah. But it's like, she was a huge A-list film star. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's no pause button. Like, it's going to go on with you or without you. It doesn't matter who you are, period. So appreciate what you have and and never forget how many people are that are just as good as you are at what you're doing that would kill mm. for, for the opportunity. And, and I think that's the balance. Right. Um, and I imagine for a lot of people, this whole COVID thing and so many things being put on pause is a good reminder of uh, uh, how easily things can go away, how successful things can go away. I mean, in the sports world, it was really quite obvious for us, obviously. But um, I used to always say, well, it's great because, you know, sports is like an industry that no matter no matter what happens, there's always sports. And then I was like, except except yeah. apparently a global pandemic. I uh, didn't see that one coming, but um, same, same goes for entertainment. There's always music and movies and television. And in this case, it was weirdly disrupted in ways that we've literally never seen before, even during wars. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It certainly worked that way for me. And, and a lot of people I know too. I mean, it brought a ton of, of perspective and, and again, that's tied directly to how fortunate you were going into it as to, you know, how much real estate you were able to give to introspection and feeling appreciative as opposed to like, how the hell am I going to eat? How am I going to feed my yeah. family, keep my lights on? But for those of us that were fortunate enough to take a beat, take a breath and, you know, turn the looking glass on ourselves, like I do, I really believe that a lot of good can come out of uh, this insane time. Uh, we're running out of time. I have two quick ones for you. Um, you're back filming in Vancouver. Is it like uh, the NBA bubble? Are we testing every day? Are you? Uh, is it like the SNL sketch where they had <laughs> soap opera, but they like had lips on top of sticks that they kissed each other from six feet away? What are we doing? Uh, testing every other day. Uh, a lot of new protocols in place to keep uh, less people on set, uh, shorter shooting days, scenes with less actors in them. Um, as little physical contact as possible. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't get your hopes up for a lot of bedroom <laughs> sauce this, this season. Uh, but no, I'm I, out I, have a, I was in it for sex. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, sir. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll have a much better handle on, on how it looks, uh, after we get a couple weeks under our belt, but yeah, for sure. It's all new. It's all new. And we're all sort of flying by the seat of our pants. Uh, and then you're working with the uh, V Foundation, I heard. Yeah, this is really cool. This was just, uh, you know, I've been playing uh, the NFFC and the NFBC, the high stakes uh, fantasy uh, that Greg Ambrosius and Tom Kessenich started um, a while back. And, you know, I, I had one good year in each sport. And then everything else has just been devastation and, and me getting the shit beat out of me by people who do this for a living. But I always go back cause you know, it's a fun pastime and I love, I love sports so much. And this year felt really strange cause we're moving forward with the same leagues, you know, the same buy-ins, the same high stakes stuff. And we don't even know what a season is going to look like or if we're going to get a full season. And, and Greg and I were texting. It was like, how else can we, how else can we bring the fantasy community together during this time 
if we don't even end up with a full football season. It's like, let's do something philanthropic. Let's let's see if we can get people to galvanize behind the cause. And then maybe it's something that can stick forever, you know, moving forward. And because, you know, we're under the Disney umbrella, um, you know, the, the V Foundation just felt like an obvious fit. Yeah. Uh, I play a cancer survivor. Um, we reached out to them. They were awesome. ESPN has been awesome. So the long and short of it is that The Miz, uh, WWE superstar The Miz, and I are going to have a team in this year's NFFC that's playing for the V Foundation. Cool. And there's an, there's an overall prize of a couple hundred thousand dollars if Oof. we could win the whole thing. All right. in, in addition to that, it's just like, hey, if you've got the disposable income to play high stakes fantasy sports, then throw a little something at, you know, finding a cure for cancer. Yeah. Too. Yeah, yeah. And we'll all, we'll all do this together. And if you don't have that kind of money and you're just, you know, a casual sports fan who are, who have your friendly leagues, then, you know, follow along and we'll make some videos and, and uh, you can root for us and, that's send awesome. some good karma our way. So that's yeah. that's the plan. Uh, I found out that somehow the the intricacies of my podcast are known to others outside me because I used to do this on the fly where I just like, I'm going to have whoever I want on and no one's paying attention. So just let me do my thing. And then we were about to record and some random email comes in from the VFAP. James, how great. We're working <laughs> with James. I'm like, how do you even know I'm doing this? Like, who's my, I blame, I blame my producer, Dan. He must be secretly sliding all my guests across to the big wigs up top to make sure I'm not, you know. Well, here's one more piece of fun news for you. Now that you've announced on this podcast that you're going to go watch some psych. Yeah. Congratulations. The psychos will follow everything you do for the rest of your life. I get that feeling. (laughs) I literally last night, this, this woman on Twitter posted, I'm going to spend the rest of the night watching psych. I can't stop. And I was like, Hey, James Rode is coming on my podcast tomorrow. If you have a question for him. And then my timeline just flooded with, have you guys seen this? And can you ask him this? And apparently there was a psych night marathon. Did you see this? Some woman organized literally an overnight virtual marathon to raise money for uh, your former co-stars, uh, uh, dog rescue animal Tiger foundation, yeah, which that's is right. awesome. Again, doing something cool with their fandom. Um, they're the best. They're the best fans. And yeah. they, they earn their name and welcome. You're going to be a part of that. Universe. I look forward to it. I'm <laughs> going to announce it when this podcast goes up before I even take the slings and arrows of, Ooh, psych. So you know everything about it. And that's how I got this interview. No, not a damn thing. So, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to catch up. I, I I've been loving happy endings and I always trust, my Twitter people to know my, my likes and dislikes even more than the people that know me in person somehow, which is weird. But, uh, so if they tell me I'm going to like it, then I'm in, um, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish inquisition. It's the Spanish inquisition. Question one, what's your desert Island album? You can only have one. Sundays, uh, reading, writing and arithmetic. Ooh. Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Patience. Mm, good one. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, I would say offense in baseball. <laughs> yeah. Number, <laughs> Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes, but it was a long, long time ago. Did you win? I did. It was very short. It was a one one, one? punch. Nice. Yeah. TKO. Uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Who? Uh, well, it would definitely be a woman. And uh, 
maybe Michelle Obama. Nice. Common answer, but great answer. And also usually people pick their own gender. And every time I'm like, why in the world wouldn't you take this opportunity to just see what's up? Just give it a shot, man. Um, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Most embarrassed. Uh, I fell one time um, in a production of Dracula. I had, I was holding, I was holding an actress in my arms and her, the, dress of her train of her dress got stuck under my foot and uh we both fell and it was in front of a packed house and that's on me on me (laughs) it's not great uh number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve oh god that's a that's a lengthy list uh maybe uh man my i would i would love to get better at uh at not you know what? I want my Spanish to be better. I'll make it really simple. No, you were going to say something really deep and introspective. But it's tied to that. So the easy answer is like, I've been saying I need to get my Spanish back for 20 years. And it's like, let's do it. Yeah. Download Babbel and do it. Uh, yeah, now's the time to do it. Even though I know you have to work just like uh, before. So maybe you don't have as much free time. But I would say for most of us, all the time we would have spent going out and being social needs to be applied to something we've been claiming we want to do forever because you can take Zoom guitar lessons, you can learn Spanish at your house. In fact, it's a much better solitary task, so uh, it's a good one. Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Uh, wear a mask. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's a oh, and by the way, if, I, if, the, if my person that I switched lives with doesn't have to still be living, I would go all the way back and I think be Mary Shelley. Okay. So you're into the, 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 well, yeah, you're into like horror stuff. I read, I read you used to be really into that. I would want to go do all the psychedelics and come up with the idea for Frankenstein. Nice. I like that. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? I think anytime one of my animals is sick is probably the most scared I, I ever will be too. Yeah. It's not fair. They need to live as long as we do. I think need to work on that. Scientists. You got nothing else on your plates. <laughs> get, exactly. get on it. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Uh, safe, compassionate, uh, fair, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, creative. Those are good ones. And finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's an interesting person to talk to from, as I mentioned before, I don't ask anyone clearance. So literally anywhere that does anything. <laughs> anyone, anywhere that does anything. Oh, man. Um, I would say I, someone I can personally vouch for. Uh, I would have Dulé on. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you can get the whole other side of the coin, plus talk West Wing, plus talk, you know, BLM if you want to. It's good stuff. And suits and Meghan Markle and everything else. Yeah, he'd be a good one. I'll wait for the psych uh, fandom to just build and build, and then I'll hit him with Dulé just to, you know, give him the good stuff. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. It was super fun. Uh, I'm so thrilled. I've been a fan of yours for a while. Uh, That's really nice. I love the the way you managed to balance uh, snark and uh, heart. And the way they've been using your platform, especially of late, has been very impressive. 
That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, houseplants. I love them. Why don't they love me back? Okay, maybe that's a little dramatic. Uh, Most of them do, but still, I have two sad plants in my house. I don't know what to do about them because every website says the leaves may be brown due to overwatering or underwatering. Well, make up your damn mind. How am I supposed to fix it if it's one or the other of the same thing, but in opposite directions? How do I know if I'm doing one or the other if both cause the same problem? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I even downloaded and paid for an app to tell me exactly when to water and mist and fertilize. And okay, fine, I haven't actually fertilized. I just bought the fertilizer, but I haven't actually done it because I've been too lazy. And maybe I would fertilize if they told me that my fiddly fig and my bird's nest fern were particularly unhappy and would perk up a little bit with a little fertilization. Instead, it's always about the water, too much or too little, or both. It's making it difficult to appreciate those two plants. They're very sad. And yes, I do have 20, yes, 20 other plants that are thriving in my home. I had an issue early in quarantine and I wanted to buy something that would make me happy, so I bought 22 plants. And many of them consider me the world's best plant mom. But the two sick ones are making me sad. Okay. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Why can't plants just tell you what's wrong? Wait, that's not it. Why can't plants do different things when they're overwatered versus underwatered? And why can't the internet solve all my plant problems for me? And why am I too lazy to use the fertilizer I bought? Eh, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it in your review. Leave the dilemma and I'll solve it on the next show. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>